Amen. Well, Luke chapter 6 is where we're going to be at this morning. Uh, You can begin to make your way there as we continue uh, as a faith family going through the Gospel of Luke. Um, I fancy myself as a little bit of a wannabe church history nerd. Um, And that that might not sound interesting to you at all. But let me just put this out there. Uh, Church history is simply the story of God making manifest his kingdom on earth through his people. And if that story doesn't incite you or excite you at all, then, then maybe you haven't understood the, the, some of the radical ways that uh, God has shaped the world in, in this way. We, we know from Luke that at the beginning of uh, the, the story in, in Jesus uh, that uh, there was a, a, a Caesar on the throne 1,500 miles away. His name was Augustus. Caesar Augustus was kind of a, a, a new kind of breed of Caesar. He was the first to really embrace uh, the, the, the people uh, venerating him as a god among men. There was legends about him being born to a virgin. Uh, there, there was uh, inscriptions on buildings and monuments and coinage throughout the Roman world that just kind of proclaimed the divinity of Caesar. Uh, Caesar had a, a young choir of boys in Rome that would always sing his praise. They would sing glory to Caesar on the highest and on earth peace on whom his favor rests. This is their song. Well, Caesar, uh, he, he, he was kind of eccentric, but not nearly as eccentric as his great-great-grandson. His great-great-grandson, Nero, uh, he really embraced this, but he wanted to, uh, he wanted to uh, live out the implications. If God has come to earth in himself, uh, that, that should change everything. And so um, he, he uh, wasn't someone that just kind of ruled from afar. He, he went uh, among the people and he would go down and he would, he'd go to the Olympic Games and start in the Olympic Games. He, he'd go to Corinth and he, he said, there's no taxes for a year and they would celebrate him. Uh, he, he loved to be honored and worshiped and venerated. And, and he wanted to be, um, he wanted to be well-liked. So in the year 64 AD, uh, he had an idea. In the summer of 64 AD, uh, historians tell us that he he decided to throw a street party, a massive party for the people. There'd be drinking and and food and revelry. Uh, uh, I don't even know what this means, but I learned this this week. Uh, In the middle of the the city of of Rome, there's a lake that was filled with sea monsters. I'm like, "What, what is that? What do you mean it's filled with sea monsters? And how do you do that? Um, but uh, along the lake, there's a, there was a road. And in this road, there was uh, set up all these makeshift brothels. One of the things that happens when you study history uh, is, is understand how brutal the world was back then. Just horrific. But, but uh, it wasn't that the prostitution wasn't everywhere in Rome. It was. But, but for this night... For this one night, Nero wanted to give the men of Rome a taste of what it was like to be a god among men, what it was like to be emperor. And so he issued a decree on this night of revelry, every single woman must be available to any man, young, old, rich, poor, slave, free, noble class, peasant class, you cannot resist. And we're kind of like horrified by that, right? But what might be even more horrifying is, is the idea that they weren't horrified by it at all. Like, well, what about these husbands? And what about these fathers? They weren't horrified. They're like, uh, women are just property. 
Okay, but surely your own daughter. Uh, no, they didn't have a high view of daughters at all. Uh, that they uh, had a very common practice uh, that there were so many more men than women in first century Rome because uh, they would kill their daughters or they'd set them out or they'd throw them in the Tiberius River or they'd put them in the trash heap. And then at, at night, uh, people would go out and, and find them, but not to rescue them and, and love them, but find them because they were their future slaves and prostitutes to raise them as such. It was a brutal horrific world. Well, a few weeks after the, uh, the night party or the, the street party that Nero threw, uh, a, a massive fire breaks out in Rome and, and burns down many of the buildings. A lot of people live there, lose their lives. And, and there's a bloodthirst to figure out who's responsible for this. Now, historians tell us uh, there's a high probability that Nero himself was responsible such a megalomaniac, such a narcissist, that, that he was trying to make space in the city for new monuments to be erected to his glory. But as public opinion, uh, uh, opinion started to turn on him, he needed a scapegoat. And he found one in this little Jewish offsect, uh, offshoot called the Christiani. No one really knew much about him these Christians that just knew that they were strange. They had stopped going to the pagan temples, stopped doing their, all, all the worship to the different gods, that they seemed to be Jewish, but not. And there were some rumors about these people as highly immoral people, that they would, they would eat the body and drink the blood of their God. And so they became a very easy target. Nero said, it's the Christians. And, and a massive, the first of many Massive persecutions break out on our brothers and sisters. They, they are uh, fed to the lions in the Colosseum. They, they, are, uh, uh, fought, they, they had to fight gladiators without any weapons. Uh, Nero would, would, would cover them in tar, light them on fire alive, put them on sticks to light up the city and the Colosseum. Just brutal. And this would be one of many that would roll out of the next three centuries of, of persecutions against these Christians. Um, one of the books I'm reading this this week this this time uh, this year. I, I'm trying to figure out what I'm going to say and not saying what I'm actually saying. Uh, one of the books I'm reading is Tom Holland. Uh, my daughter's like Tom Holland wrote a book, not the actor, uh, <laughs> historian, uh, Dominion: How the Christian Revolution Remade the World, um, and in it. He, he talks about how when he was a, he's, he's a British guy, when he was a teenager, he kind of uh, was disenchanted with the, the faith of his parents, kind of left the Christian faith, wasn't really interested in Christians or Christianity. They, they seemed kind of weak. And he was much more interested in uh, the, the enemies of God's people, the Egyptians, the Babylonians, the Assyrians, the Romans, the Gauls, like, like these people that had power and authority. And so he, he went and got his degrees in, in history and began to study and research and begin to write about these ancient civilizations and, the, and, and what they did. But uh, in the preface of his book, he says something interesting. He, 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 noted, he, he wasn't real comfortable reading about this, and he didn't know why. Here's what he says. It was not the extreme... The extremes of callousness that unsettled me, but the complete lack of any sense that the poor or the weak might have the slightest intrinsic value. Why did I find this disturbing? Because in my morals and ethics, I was not a Spartan or a Roman at all. 
That my belief in God had faded over the course of my teenage years did not mean that I had, not, had ceased to be Christian, or rather we would say have a Christian worldview. For a millennia and more, the civilization into which I had been born was Christendom. Assumptions that I had grown up with about how a society should properly be organized and the principles that should uphold it were not bred of classical antiquity, still less of human nature, but very distinctively of that, Christ, that civilization's Christian past. So profound has been the impact of Christianity on the development of Western civilization that it has become to be hidden from view. He, he just has this realization that all that we value in the West actually has roots from somewhere. <laughs> and, and, and we're going to see where those roots are in our passage today. In the life of these Christians and, and in the teaching that Jesus has in his life and what he commands his believers to. It was a radically new concept. It was radically uh, counterculture. It's like we said last week, it's upside down. Um, one of the things I appreciate is when, when people try to follow the logical conclusions of their worldview. So, so when an atheist tries to follow his, the logical conclusions of their worldview uh, and, and what that means. So, for example, recently I, I saw on Twitter uh, a TED Talk by Yuval Noah Harari. Yuval Noah Harari is, a, is an Israeli atheist uh, philosopher, thinker, wrote the book called Homo Sapiens. And, and in this TED Talk, he, he basically repeats, on repeat, he says, uh, let me see if I have the actual quote. I don't. He says... Uh, he basically says, there's just like, um, just like God and any religion, they're all stories. There, there is no such thing as human rights. And he just keeps repeating, there is no, there is no uh, innate human right. There's no such thing, uh, that, that some transcendent thing that we would say is human rights. And he just says, it's a, it's a fiction. We've made it up. And what's interesting is just kind of the response that comes back to them. People who are not believers at all in the West, we still love and cherish this idea of human rights, human rights, human rights. But, but sometimes they don't know where that came from. They just think, oh, it's, it's human rights and it's innate. And Yuval has the courage enough to stand up and say, no, that's just a fiction. Now, what Yuval doesn't do, uh, and most people don't do, is then try to live in a world like that. He, he still wants to live in a world where he's protected, where people don't steal from him, where people don't murder him. He, he wants all those things. He just wants to be able to tell you those things are a fiction. Well, and that's okay. I want to live in a world that even if they don't believe what I believe, we still have all those things. But I also appreciate others like Friedrich Nietzsche. He's the one that the German philosopher who would say, God is dead and we have killed him. I was struck by one of his quotes this week, in particular to, with our passage. He says this, when one gives up the Christian faith, one pulls the right to Christian morality out from under one's feet. The morality is by no means self-evident. Christian, Christianity is a system, a whole view of things thought out together. By breaking one main concept out of it, the faith in God, one breaks the whole. It stands or falls with faith in God. Nietzsche's like, Listen, you all are trying to live under a morality that uh, if you don't embrace Christianity, it doesn't actually exist. And the Western world is horrified because as Holland points out, they've been shaped not by Rome's morality or the Assyrians' morality or the Babylonian. They've been shaped by Christ's morality. 
And um, we, we see in this passage why that is. We see in this passage why we have the resources that, and the hope that the world needs. If we'll understand what Jesus is saying to his followers in this passage. Now, I want to answer three questions of it. What is it? What is the thing that the world needs most from us as followers of Christ? Why is it impossible? Okay, so that sounds fun. What is it? Why is it impossible? And then paradoxically, how is it possible? Okay, so just track with me. We're going to say, what is it? Why is it impossible? And how is it possible. So if you have your Bible, uh, Luke chapter 6 is where we're at. We're going to pick it up in verse 27. 27. Jesus is in what's called the Sermon on the Plain. It has some echoes of the Sermon on the Mount, but in Luke's gospel, uh, it's this, and he he starts with saying, but to you who are listening, but to you who are listening. Now, why does he start that way? Well, if you're here last week, he started his sermon, the Sermon on the Plain, with the Beatitudes, and uh, we saw that they are countercultural. They're upside down. In every way that we think is the good life, Jesus says, no, it's actually opposite. So he, he said stuff like, uh, blessed are the poor. Blessed are those who hunger. Blessed are those who, are, who weep. Blessed are those when, when you're hated, excluded, and persecuted. He said, that's the blessing of the life. And we're all like, that doesn't sound like a blessing at all. Uh, but, but it's this upside down kingdom mentality. And then, then, then he says this. To you who are still listening, as it's as if, like, if you're still tracking with me, right? So Jesus, well, we know at the beginning of this passage, there's a large crowd. A lot of them identify as disciples, and, and just maybe thousands of people have come out to see Jesus. And, and throughout the Gospels, whenever Jesus just really seems to get it rolling, he'll say something or do something that just makes the crowd disperse. And, and the disciples are like, wow, oh, bro, we, we just had it. <laughs> And he's like, no, let me, let, me, let, me tell you, let me tell them who's blessed. And they're like, uh, I'm out. And, and so in our, our passage, he's like, if you're still listening, buckle up. It's going to get harder. It's going to be harder than last week. He says, buckle up. But to you who are listening, I say love. I say love. This is the first time the word love is used in Luke's gospel. First time Jesus commands love. Uh, you might know that there's three different words. We have one word for love. I love pizza and I love my wife. But they had three. You probably know this. Uh, eros is erotic love in the Greek. Uh, phileo, that's brotherly love. Philadelphia, the, the city of brotherly love, right? And then there's agape. But what I didn't know until this week about agape uh, is that Until the New Testament, agape was kind of like our word love. It was the generic word, just like love, love. But in the New Testament, they radically transformed this word agape to reflect what the Old Testament word, the Hebrew word chesed is, God's loving faithfulness, never-ending faithfulness. And they they co-opt the word agape and they pour into it this sacrificial, costly, at all cost love never ending love and jesus says, i tell you the truth love love your enemies and again because you're in the west two thousand years later that sounds like a pretty good idea this would have been unthinkable love my enemies this doesn't make any sense. Agape, like sacrificial love, I could, I could see maybe, you know, tolerate your enemies or just put up with that. But, but Jesus' first command is 
to love your enemies. And not just love them, agape love them. Be willing to die for them. This is crazy. That no other philosopher or teacher or religion had ever come around and said, hey, this is what it looks like to be in the kingdom. Now, here's what you need to know about this passage. Jesus is talking to disciples. He's talking to members of the kingdom of light. And he's saying, how should the members of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of light, live in a world of darkness? How should we relate to those that are not in the kingdom? And the first thing he says is, well, you should love your enemies. This, there, there may be some decent applications outside of that. Like, oh, you know, this is good for marriage. Who's my enemy? Well, sometimes, you know, uh, do good to those who hate you. Sure. Bless those who curse you. I went to a whole conference that that was the theme. Give a blessing for a, a cursing. Okay, that, that's good. But this is really more particular about how God's people should interact with those outside the kingdom of God. He says, I, he says, love your enemies. That's the first one. In case that wasn't clear, the second command, do good to those who hate you. So, so not just tolerate them, but like look proactively. How can I do good to, to those that actually hate me? Again, this is why I said the first thing is this is impossible. No one just loves their enemies. No one just does good to those who hate them. Bless those who curse you. This is a blessing for a cursing, right? This is, no, no one is just like, hey, um, thank you so much for, for, for cursing me out and, and calling down uh, curses on my head. I just want to bless you. May God's face shine upon you and, and be good to you. Jesus says, this is what God's kingdom people are like. And then he says, pray for those who mistreat you or persecute you. Pray for those. And again, this is not my knee-jerk reaction, right? Like, I'm just going to pray for this. No. And, and in context, he's not just saying pray, you know, the, the imprecatory psalms, right? God, break the teeth in their mouth. The kind of psalm. No, he's like, pray for their good. My wife raises her hand. Uh, pray for their help. She's like, what? Uh, pray, for, pray for their flourishing. Like, all your impulses do the opposite. How in the world? But again, it's this teaching that, that somehow works its way into the followers of Christ that turned the world upside down. So if that wasn't clear, again, we, we read these and beca- because we've been shaped, our, our culture, whether you're a Christian or not, or ever read the Bible, our culture has been shaped in ways like this. There is a, a, a borrowed ethical capital from the Judeo-Christian worldview that 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 people around us take this. And so on the, uh, at first glance, we're like, oh, that sounds great. Love your enemies. Until you actually try to do it. Until you actually try to bring it into practice. And he says, just to be clear, let's see, let's work this out. Verse 29, if someone slaps you on the cheek, turn to them the other also. This, this isn't speaking about like, never defend yourself. This is about being willing to be disrespected for the name of Jesus. Um, in first century, if you were to be kicked out of the synagogue, which means you're kicked out of life and culture and everything, uh, as they take you to the steps of the synagogue or the temple, the last thing they do would do to you is they would slap your face as a show of disrespect and you're out. We see this with Jesus at the mockery of his trial before the high priest, someone strikes him on the face. They're, they're disrespecting him. Like, 
you'd almost want to just take a punch to the face than a slap across the face, right? It's just the ultimate view of, of, of being disrespected. And Jesus says, it's okay. If you're in the kingdom of light, you, it's okay if you're disrespected. Turn to them the other cheek. As someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them also. Give to everyone who asks you, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Again, no, no, no. Jesus, this is, not, this is not how you get ahead in the world. Like just kind of just being a victim. Like what, what is that? No, no. You, you get yours. You go get yours. That's how the, the world works. That's how the world has always worked. And Jesus says, no, not for my people. I, I want a radically different ethic for the people in the kingdom of God. And he says this because he's, he's helping us uh, both last week and this week. He's helping us realize that, one, this, is, this world is short. This, this time, our time is short. Two, everything we have, well, we're just stewards. Of, we, we hold with an open hand. We, we have so much more waiting for us. So if someone takes what we have here, don't worry. You have an eternity of blessing and, and, and goodness from God. So he says, it's okay. And then he gives the, the golden rule. Do to others as you would have them do to you. It's called the golden rule, one, because uh, it, in some form, it, it's found in a lot of the world faiths. But in all the other faiths of the world, it's in the negative. Do not do to others what you do not want them to do to you, which is understandable, right? And, and that, that sounds good also. And you could kind of come up with a list. Here's all the things I don't want done to me. But Jesus turns it positive. Do the good to others that you would want done to you. Jesus is saying, imagine if you were a person outside the kingdom of light, not knowing the grace of God, not knowing the mercy of God, not knowing the love of God, not knowing the adoption of God. Imagine that that was you. How would you want men and women who are in the kingdom, who know all those things, to live and to love you in such a way that you could see the grace of God manifest in the world? That's what he, he says. Do unto others as you'd want them to do unto you. That the positive means that I always want more done good to me. It is always proactive. It is always sacrificial. And, and then he says, you, you might be thinking, well, you know, I look at my life and I'm, I'm pretty good. I, I think I do a pretty good job of loving my friends and my neighbors and my coworkers. And, uh, you know, I, I, think, I think I passed this test, Jesus. He says, well, let me just press a little bit more. He says, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. So when he says, if you love those who love you, what credit? The word credit there is actually charis. It's the Greek word for grace. What grace is that to you? Or, Or another way he could put it is, if you just love the people that love you, what evidence of God's grace has flooded your life in that? It's like even people outside the kingdom of God, that's how they relate to each other. That's a kind of shallow love. In fact, in the end, he's going to show that it's not actually love at all. It's just a transactional living. It's saying, I'm going to love you because of what you can do for me. I'm going to love you because what you're going to uh, pay me back with. I'm going to love you because how you make me feel or the status that you give me or the transaction that we can make. This is transactional love. And Jesus says, this is not the love that testifies to the world that, that you have the love of God. Even those outside the kingdom understand this kind of love. It says, if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit or what grace is that to you? 
Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those whom you expect repayment, what credit or what grace is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners, expecting to be repaid. And so he repeats his first command. But love, agape, sacrificial, love your enemies and do good to them. And lend to them without expecting to get anything in return. So this is, again, on the surface, it is impossible. And, and, and you should feel that. No one should come away from that part of Jesus' sermon and think, okay, let's do it. Who's going to persecute me? Who's going to curse me so I can just bless them? Who can I pray for that hates me? Like no one, like you have not understood Jesus' message up until this point if you think, I got this. You should be like saying, oh my gosh, Lord, this is impossible but with you, all things are possible. And this is where it turns. I said, so what is it? It's agape love. How is it impossible? Because we can't do it on our own strength, but all things are possible with God. He turns and he says, then your reward will be great. Again, he's lifting our eyes beyond this life, beyond our pain, beyond our suffering, beyond our loss. And, he, and he's pointing us to some eternal realities. And you will be children of the most high. You will be children of the Most High. He's reminding us of who we are and whose we are in the kingdom of God. Who we are. We're rescued, redeemed, uh, renewed. We, and, and we are uh, members of, of the kingdom. Not just members. We are adopted sons and daughters with the full rights of adoption. We are joint heirs with Christ. So all the benefits and all the blessings that will be poured onto Jesus for eternity, you and I, as sons and daughters, we get to uh, embrace all that. Amen? You can say amen sometimes. That's right. So Jesus says, First of all, remember who you are and whose you are. Remember what is in store for you. Have a long view of things. And when life hits, and it does, have a long view of things. And, and, and remember what is coming to you forever and ever and ever and ever. He says, you'll be children of the Most High. Children reflect their parents. Like father, like daughter, like father, like son, right? I mean, we see this, right? Some, we'll say in our family when our daughters are doing something, or, or something, uh, she gets that from me if it's something positive. If it's something negative, she gets that from you, right? Like, that's what we say. But, but there is a resemblance. And Jesus is saying, you're children of God. How is this possible to actually live like this? Because you're children of God. And he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. If we look like our heavenly father, we'll be kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. And then he concludes, he says, be merciful just as your father is merciful. In the first century, the philosophers of the first century, mercy was not a virtue. It was a vice. Philosophers said you should resist any impulse towards mercy because it'll make you weak. And if, if there's any need for mercy, it's probably because something they've done, they deserve whatever they get. But, but Jesus comes along and says, no, no, your father, he's a God of mercy. And you, sons and daughters of this father, are to look like that. I mean, in our world today, 
even the most ardent atheist, if you ask them, hey, is mercy a good thing? They would probably say, yes, it's because of Jesus. It's because of Jesus. That, that wasn't a value in the world until Jesus came along. Look like your heavenly father. Uh, Matthew, in his gospel at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, he'll say, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Like, well, how in the world is that possible? Well, you're supposed to look like your father. How is that possible? Well, we'll, we'll get to that. Paul will say to the Ephesian church in Ephesians 5.1, Therefore, be imitators of God. Why? As beloved children. Because we're his children. We imitate him. And walk in love, agape, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us in offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Do you see there, there's this repeated command in Scripture? The reason we can love, the reason we can be merciful, the reason we, we, we can be eth- embrace this new kingdom ethic is because this is the kingdom ethic, ethic of our Heavenly Father. Right? Think about it. Paul pointed out, just as Christ also loved you. Everything that Jesus has commanded, love your enemies. Do good to those who harm you. Bless and do not curse. Pray for your enemies. Everything he commanded. We see this in Jesus on the cross, loving his enemies. Romans 5.10, while we were enemies of God, Christ reconciled us by his cross, right? Uh, when he's being cursed and spat upon, he's the one who created the, the very glands in the, their mouth so that, to create the saliva to spit on him. He's the one who created the, the, the tree that, that he would be uh, uh, crucified on. He's the one who brought the molecules together for the, the iron spikes that would be driven through his arms. And, and he doesn't curse. He blesses when others are cursing him. When the thieves on the cross are, are mocking him, he, he, he endures it. Eventually one turns to them and he blesses them and says, this day you'll be with me in paradise. When they're literally driving the thick seven inch iron spikes through his wrists and his ankles, he prays for them. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. So so how do we do this? Well, we do this. We do the impossible through a few things. One, with union with Christ. Rick already said, this is so important. This is it. How do we actually fulfill the kingdom ethic? Well, we don't fulfill it in our strength, but in his strength. This is the whole key to the Christian life. The Christian life isn't it just difficult. It's impossible. Only one guy was ever able to pull it off, so they named it after him. And so you might as well have him live it in you because only he can do it. So it's union with Christ, empowered by the spirit, taught by his word, encouraged by his people. That's it. That's the path. And it changes the world. It changes the world. Well, let me go back to some church history here for a moment. Um, Fast forward three centuries from Nero. Uh, In the year 323, I believe, uh, Constantine had converted to Christianity and had made Christianity the official religion. But but, uh, by that point, it was inevitable. This little movement that... All of the might and power of the most powerful uh, empire at, at, in the world at that time was leveraged to squash out. It wasn't squashed out. In fact, it grew. Which is just crazy, right? Because you can fly to Rome, pay your 20 euros, walk around the ruins of this empire, and look at the places where they thought 
we'll get rid of Christianity. But they didn't. Instead, the Christians grew, and they grew and grew. But they didn't grow through might and power. They grew through this upside-down kingdom weakness. They loved their enemies. Well, fast forward uh, after Constantine, there were still some emperors that that wanted to revert back to uh, the the old ways. So in the year 361, uh, the nephew of Constantine had taken over uh, Julian, known as Julian the, the Apostate. He had grown up in a Christian home, but, but he had abandoned that and, and re, uh, recommitted himself to the pagan gods. And his thought was, the reason why Rome is crumbling is because uh, the, the gods are angry with us. And so we need to reestablish uh, their presence among the Romans. And so uh, he was on his way to a battle on the east, and, and he decided to take a detour to Galatia and visit the temple of Sibel, the, the goddess Sibel. And uh, there it was run down and, and he was just so discouraged, like no one's going to it. And, and he's like, what are we going to do? And so he writes a letter. He, he writes a letter to uh, the high priest of, of this, this pagan uh, worship. And he's just imploring them. We, we've got to do something. These Christians are taking over. <laughs> I love what, what he, he says in the letter. He's, he's, he's trying to tell them, hey, we've got to do better. Like, we've got to take care of the poor and the oppressed and all this. And he says, teach them that doing good works was our practice of old. And Tom Holland says, an assertion that would have no doubt have come as news to the celebrants of Sabelle themselves. So they're like, what? No, no, that's not what we do. We don't care for the poor, the oppressed, the widows, the orphans. No, 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 no. That's not our God. Our God's one of power. He doesn't care about that. And he goes on, and he's just, he's just imploring. Listen to what he says, trying to get the world to be pagan again. He says, how apparent to everyone it is, and how shameful that our own people, the, the pagans, lack support from us. When no Jew ever has to beg, and the impious Galileans, the Christians, support not only their own poor, but ours as well. Do you hear what he's saying? He's like, we're losing the battle because they're loving us better than you guys are loving. No matter what we try, no matter what we do to put them to death, they just keep multiplying. But like the story is, is super interesting. There, there were some massive plagues in the uh, probably smallpox. And, and while the pagans ran for the hills, the Christians went into the cities and they, they loved on people and they died by, by the hundreds and thousands. But they also grew immunity and they also showed, uh, brought some of these pagans back to life. And then they were just converting, converting all those little girls that would be left out on the, the trash heap. The Christians would go out and, and, and bring them in not to be slaves in the brothels, but to be their daughters. This is how the world was turned upside down. This is the path forward. The path forward is to go back and to learn from Jesus and to learn from our forefathers and mothers who loved in an upside down way. It's not the one of dominating the world with power. This has never been the way for God's people. And so, brothers and sisters, may we be that kind of people again. May God move, do in us what he did in them for the sake of our neighbors and the nations. Amen? Amen. Let me pray for us to that end. Yeah, Father, I, I do pray that you would help us this week to take to heart what it means to love our enemies. Lord, even right now in our seat, to show us, show us what that means. Show us what it means to do good. 
to those that hate us, to bless those that curse us, and to pray for those that mistreat us, Lord. Lord, your kingdom is an upside-down kingdom, and we are citizens of it. We are sons and daughters. Lord, make much of Jesus. Conform us to the image of Jesus so that you are glorified and our neighbors can see and the nations can see that you are glorious in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.